I'm Jessica, and this is Homecoming, Finding Yourself in Life's Little Moments. Hi, dear listener. So it is a clear, cool, breeze-filled, dark night here on the outskirts of Sydney, Australia. It was warm and sunny all day, which was just beautiful. And now the calm of the evening has descended and I am compelled to make this podcast. You know, the subtitle of my podcast series, Homecoming, is finding yourself in life's little moments. But you know, dear listener, sometimes there are really big moments. And those moments come to you in a way where I think perhaps often they're completely out of the blue. And the result of what happens changes you, reconfigures you, restores you, reconstitutes your sense of life and self. It has a life-changing effect. So interestingly, over the past few months, there have been several of these big moments The one that I'm going to tell you about now is something that, as I mentioned, I didn't see coming. But there it was, thanks to the wonders of the internet, of Facebook, whose mission they articulate as connecting friends and family. Well, indeed, dear listener, that is what happened. So one evening, maybe was at the end of September, it was actually on the day, the anniversary, the second anniversary of my dad's passing. My dad, whom I adored and still adore, and whose presence I feel close and near, even as I say this to you. So on the anniversary of his passing, somebody contacted me on Facebook and asked me a very unusual question. I didn't know this person. The message came through the sort of unfiltered message, you know, section of Messenger. We were not friends on Facebook and I didn't recognize his name. But that night I thought to myself, I'll check those messages, those ones that are often really not worth your time and are there for a good reason because essentially they're what we call these days spam. But this one wasn't and didn't seem to be, although it began with a kind of interesting question because it was clear that this person was, you know, that I was familiar in some way to them. 
And they asked me a striking question. They asked me if I was in Russia as a little girl in 1965. Now, dear listener, I was in Russia as a little girl in 1965. The trip that would occur over the course of those six weeks with my family is deserving of an entire podcast, if not more than one, because the experience of that trip, which I remember very well, was something that was like out of some kind of movie. So here I was, a little girl, five, turning six, in 1965, in the middle of the Cold War, so for anybody who knows what that is, that was a pretty rough period between what was then the Soviet Union and the United States. I was growing up in a middle-class suburb of New York. My parents were of Russian descent. We had Russian relatives still in the Soviet Union. And we decided, my parents decided, that we would make a trip in the height of the Cold War when Americans rarely, if ever, ventured into the Soviet Union. You know, it was only two or three years before that that was what was called the Cuban Missile Crisis. That was a pretty hair-raising event. It was a time when John F. Kennedy was president and Fidel Castro was the head of Cuba and it was essentially a standoff between the United States and Russia, the Soviet Union, which had a foothold in Cuba at that time. So we were really, as a country, America and the Soviet Union were at odds with one another, to say the least. But here we were, our family. My dad particularly, I think it was his idea to take a trip one summer, 1965, to go visit Russian relatives, relatives on my dad's side who were still residing in a place called Moldova, which is in the western edge of the Soviet Union. Sometimes that area had been part of Romania, went into, you know, then became part of the Soviet Union. It was a bit fluid in its association, but nonetheless, Eastern Europe, absolutely. And we kind of miraculously still had family in that part of the world, given that two-thirds of the Jews, so all my family is Jewish, perished in World War II as a result of the Nazis moving into that area, Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, other parts, Romania, Bulgaria, Poland, Czechoslovakia. Very few people of Jewish uh, religion survived, but A few of my relatives did, and they were there. So we went to visit them in the middle of the Cold War 
1965, and I was a girl of five. So we bought a Land Rover. We flew to England and bought a Land Rover and took the Land Rover, a very unreliable car, across the Channel to the European mainland and then drove from France, cross-continent, to the Soviet Union. And I'll always remember that when we arrived at the border of the Soviet Union, it was just past nine o'clock in the evening and the border closed at nine. So they would not let us through, those border guards. And we had to, there was no hotel, no motel, nothing like that. So we ended up sleeping in the Land Rover overnight, waiting for the border to open in the morning. And when the border opened in the morning, it wasn't really enough to just let us through. The border guards were quite concerned that we were smuggling things in for our relatives. So they basically took the car apart, looking for things, the door panels and the seats and you name it. They were looking for whatever they thought we might have that we were smuggling into the Soviet Union. What they did find, dear listener, was my homework. They found my homework. I was in kindergarten, and I was already a good student, I guess, <laughs> because even on that trip, I was practicing things I'd learned. I was practicing how to spell cat, and I was practicing how to spell dog. And there was a piece of paper, I can remember it in my mind's eye, clear as day, I'd written cat over and over and over again, C-A-T. I wanted to get it right. And I wrote dog over and over again, D-O-G. And I'll remember that paper. It, I put it into the glove compartment. And it was, I had hoped, stored safely there for me to continue my homework, my practicing. But when the border guards opened the glove compartment and they found my homework, they looked at it quite quizzically and with a certain sort of hesitation, and they felt, well, better safe than sorry, we'll confiscate that. And so they did, because they thought maybe there was something about my homework, about me spelling those words, that was, who knows, code? I don't know. They thought something about it, so that was my homework, and it ended up in the hands of the border guards at the border to the Soviet Union to Russia at that time, 1965, in the middle of the Cold War. So we went and we visited, okay, and it was quite something. I had spent all my time as a young child in a middle-class suburb of New York, you know, New York, and here we were visiting rather poor relatives whom I'd never met, not met before that, in the Soviet Union. And I'll always remember visiting them. And they, regardless of how little they may have had, for their American relatives come all this way to see them, they put on quite a spread. The table, it seemed to me that they put in the backyard with a tablecloth, more than one, and food up and down this long table 
From my five-year-old perspective, this table went on and on, and in fact, I think it did, because they were going to give everything to accommodating us. So I'll also remember that there was an outhouse. There was no indoor plumbing. But to get to the outhouse, to go to the bathroom, you had to pass a very nasty dog. And that dog was on a leash attached to something that was like a spike in the ground. But, you know, it, it did not feel like a safe bet to try and get past it to go to the outhouse. So these were the things so different to what I knew as a young girl from New York, there with my Russian relatives, there in Moldova, that's the province, in 1965, in the middle of the Cold War. And also to say that we were followed by Russian intelligence the entire trip. We had curfews. We couldn't stay with our Russian relatives. We had to go back to a quote-unquote tourist hotel. We had to be back by a certain time, I think 8 or 9 p.m. That was our curfew. And if we didn't get back, then they came to get us and ask why. So one very funny thing, just as a last point of this, and there's more to say about it this whole trip, is that one evening my dad got really, 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 really drunk. <laughs> Too much Russian vodka. And he couldn't get us back. In fact, he couldn't get off the couch. And apparently a nurse was called who came in and hovered over him with her sort of Russian babushka, you know, which is like a headscarf. And she was a very, 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 very large woman. And my dad was very, 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 very drunk. And he always describes looking up, I think probably the world was spinning and seeing this woman sort of hovering over him, trying to ascertain his condition. And uh, I sort of imagine what his, you know, spinning world was like at that time, in that moment. But... I guess, eventually we got back to the hotel. So fast forward 55 years on the second anniversary of my dad's passing and I get this text from someone I didn't know asking me, was I in Russia in 1965 as a little girl? And what's interesting is that I happen to have the passport picture of me from that trip. So I have a picture of what I looked like at that time. And when I began to realize that this person was actually a relative, and that, as he said to me, that he was there, he was a teenager at the time, and he was a distant cousin, and he and his family were living not that far from the relatives that we visited, and they came to meet us, they came and traveled, to meet us when we were there. And he remembers that. And he was wanting to find out where the girl was all these years hence. And so he recognized me, I guess, on Facebook. But more than that, he knew the name, you see. So this gets to more of what I'm going to share with you, dear listener, because you see, the fact that my name 
Romisher is not that common, has enabled a lot of kind of mysterious and miraculous things to happen. People can find me easily on the internet. And this man did. And so we began to chat. And he said, I was there. I met you. I was in my teens. You were five or six, a little girl. And I've been wanting to know what happened to that little girl. And so we began this conversation, dear listener. And I sent him the passport photo. And he said, oh, he said, that's the little girl I remember. So out of this now comes the second part to this extraordinary thing. So when I talk about life's big moments, dear listener, okay, this is how it began. In some sense, it began with that trip. That was a big moment in 1965 for a little girl to travel across the continent of Europe by Land Rover, very unreliable car, broke down a lot. We finally made it, got stopped at the Russian border, slept overnight at the Russian border, got her homework confiscated, finally made it across with my family, made it to my relatives, almost got bitten by the dog guarding the outhouse, you know, as we were enjoying the spread that was put out before us of all sorts of things. I remember olives and pickles and I think herring, you know, these were typical sorts of Jewish foods and anyway, breads, lots of them, you know, all of this was put out for us, the relatives who made it to visit from America. So that was the first miracle, but the second occurred when this man, whom I realized was there, and a distant cousin came to find me on the internet and succeeded. So as we began to chat and talk and message and so on, he said, you know, he said, you actually have relatives in Argentina. We have relatives with the same name. His name is actually different to mine, but he said with my name, my last name in Argentina. He said, there's a whole section of family that made it to Argentina in the late 1800s, you know, like around 1890 or so. Dear listener, I had no idea. And you see, I have to tell you that the whole backdrop in a certain way, you know, one of the major sorts of contexts for what I'm describing and how extraordinary this is, is because I left the States three years ago to start a new life here in Australia under pretty tough circumstances and with a hundred pounds of luggage. You know, it's not every day, I guess, people do that, but here I am. And when you start a new life in a country completely different to your own, really um, from scratch, it's not easy, but you kind of, you know, you muddle along and you do your best and you slowly make friends and things begin to come together. And I feel blessed to be here in Australia, beautiful place by the ocean. But you know, dear listener, there was a kind of ache inside of me, a sort of void, a kind of space that I had reconciled myself to never having filled. And that space has to do with family. It has to do with family. 
So this man contacting me recently, you see, on the second anniversary of my dad's passing. My dad passed while I was here. I wasn't over there in the States where he was. This man contacted me and said he began to reveal things that I didn't know about my family. And he mentioned, as I said just a moment ago, that we had a whole bunch of family in Argentina. I had no idea. So he also said, he said, one of those members of our extended family, cousins, distant cousins, had done an extensive genealogy. Extensive. As it would turn out, this woman with the same last name as mine, spelled differently, in Argentina, had spent seven years researching my family, our family. It's not easy, you see, dear listener, it's not easy. Why? Why is it not easy to research and find, you know, one's forebears? Often it can be made more difficult by extenuating circumstances. So in the case of my family, most of whom were Jewish, most of whom came up through, you know, generations in Russia and the Soviet Union and so on, many of whom were then, um, did not survive, were killed during World War II by the Nazis. Many of whom, many of those who didn't uh, succumb to that fate had made it, you know, to Israel, to the United States, as my family did prior to World War II, and as it would turn out, unbeknownst to me, to Argentina, of all places. So that what they call the diaspora, you see, that's the, dis the dispersing of families across the globe, occurred to a very significant, significant extent uh, with Jewish families, and many of them, in the end, didn't survive. Two-thirds of European Jew Jewry perished. Two-thirds, six million out of nine million. You know, that's quite something. But I'm here to tell you this story, miraculously also. So I contacted this woman this cousin, this distant cousin in Argentina. And we began to have the most beautiful connection. We began to share our stories. And she showed me the genealogy that had taken her seven, at least seven dedicated years to put together. And dear listener, this is where what I'm telling you constitutes one of life's big moments. Because you see, in speaking with her, in pouring over this genealogy, 300, sorry, 232 pages of photos, family trees. She speaks Spanish. I speak some Spanish, fortunately. But it's all translated. This book is all translated into English as well. 232 pages going back to my great, 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 great grandfather. <laughs> 
Now, I didn't even really know who my great-grandfather was. I knew who my grandfather was. I grew up seeing him occasionally in New York, my dad's father, Ben. But I didn't really know much about his father or his father's father or his father's father's father or his father's 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 father. Back to the late 1700s. Now, as I'm telling you this, dear listener, I have to say that time is a very strange thing. We are wrought from whence we come. And if you begin to have a sense of where you've come from, who, whom you've come from, it expands your sense of self in ways that it's difficult to put words to, okay? So as I was looking through this 232-page book that this wonderful relative of mine with the same last name had constructed, had researched, had, had you know, with just, I'm talking about a labor of love. This is it. This was it. It is it. This, this is an incredible thing. Document. And what she discovered was that the name Romisher is unique enough, it's unusual enough, and through her research, she has fairly certainly concluded that anyone in the world with that name, and it is spelled differently here and there, but nonetheless is recognizable, is related. It's one single family. So, even as I say this to you, I can feel as if my being, my very being, expands. You see, I have been given a kind of identity that I didn't know I had. On the second anniversary of my dad's passing, when this cousin contacted me from the States and then began to tell me about this other cousin in Argentina, and then suddenly I realized that all this genealogical work had been done. So what's interesting is that I've come through this line with this name that goes back to the farthest that my Argentinian cousin could trace it was to Chaim Romisher, 1778, who then had several children, one of whom was named Eliyahu, and Eliyahu had eight children. He moved, he, he, let's say that he, it was at that point that the records become a bit clearer. And what's clear is that he was establishing himself as kind of a small-scale farmer somewhere around 1840 or 50. 
in Western Russia, in Moldova, in that area. Sometimes that area was Romania, sometimes that area was Russia. But he was living in a kind of Jewish settlement because Jews tended to live in places where they could live. There was a lot of discrimination. And there are records that show. So he is my great, great, great grandfather, 1840. It shows that he had two horses and two cows and goats or lambs and a hammer and a sickle and a spade, all these things in a scythe. You see, all these things fill out the sense of him and his family. He would eventually have eight children living as a small-scale farmer in Western Russia, Moldova. And if you see films that have been made that document that life, like Fiddler on the Roof or Barbara Streisand, who did a movie called Yentl, it documents pretty well, conveys, kind of evokes pretty well this quality of life of maybe many people, you know, at that time. So much has happened, dear listener, in 150 years. Oh my gosh. The changes in life on this earth have been dramatic, unprecedented, you know. But there was my great-great-great-grandfather, Eliyahu, son of Chaim, in Moldova, around 1840-1850, with his two horses and two cows and two goats and a sickle and a hammer and a spade and a scythe, making some kind of living and a rake. All these things are listed in the census from that time. And there with his wife, he had eight children. And one of those children was named Pina. And Pina was my great-great-grandfather, born in 1853 in Moldova. And you see, it was also because Eliyahu had so many sons. All those sons carried the name Romasher. You see, he had six sons, two girls, two, six boys. And unfortunately, as my wonderful Argentinian cousin who did all this research said, she said, you know, for the women, it's much more difficult to trace back through because their names changed. You see, we sort of, I don't know, you know, we take for granted that a woman will often change their name her name when she gets married. But you see, when you begin to realize the ramifications of that, which is that the identity of that woman may be that much harder to find and trace, you start to feel something, you know, about it all. But in any case, my great-great-great-grandfather Eliyahu in 1840 and 1850 with his little farm and his six sons and two daughters... Um, really propagated the Romisher family, the Romisher name. 
And his son Pinya, born in 1853, as I said, was my great, great grandfather. And Pinya had Solomon, and Solomon was my great grandfather, and Solomon had Ben, my grandfather, and Ben had my dad. And what was so interesting, dear listener, this is looping back, circling back to that time in 1965 when I went to Russia. People would call my father Pina. I remember that, and I didn't know why. Actually, my dad's given name, one of his given names was Pina. He changed it growing up in the United States. You know, that wasn't a common name. He changed it to John. But he was named Pina after his grandfather, his great-grandfather. And that was a tradition, that you were often given the name of a relative, you know, a grandfather, great-grandfather, and so on. So those first names would be carried through, just like the last name was carried through. So all of this I would discover, you see, that I actually come from these Russian Jewish peasants and what their lives were like and how one generation led to the next and led to the next. And finally, in 1929, my grandfather, Ben, who was 25 at the time, left Russia to come to the United States. And my father was being carried in my grandmother's belly on that trip and was born, my dad was born in America and thus ultimately I was. So there's going to be a part two to this because there's a lot to tell about all the things that I've learned. But let's suffice to say, dear listener, at this juncture that when you find out who your ancestors were, your forebears, to find out that my name, that anyone with my name most likely is related to me on the face of the planet, that it's a, there's a single family, that my name represents a single family, it's a very powerful thing. They talk about roots. They talk about identity. They talk about a restoration, a strengthening, you know, a bolstering of oneself through one's understanding of those that came before. That's the gift I was given on the second anniversary of my dad's passing. I was given the gift of my roots. I was given the gift of a kind of restoration and sense of self that I could never have imagined having. I had reconciled myself to being partly formed partly defined, but this has defined me in so much deeper way than I could have ever imagined. 
So the music that you're going to hear is a Russian folk melody, very famous love song called Dushinka. And it's the song that my dad would love to sing. And I remember when we were there in 1965, visiting relatives, I remember him singing that in Russian. So that music connected me back, connects me back, connects me to my dad, connects me to that place, connects me to my great, 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 great grandfather. And even back further now, I can imagine the people that would have led to those that gave rise to me through those generations. And all these years hence, I'm able to now tell you the story because of this kind of miracle that happened, this big moment. So with that, dear listener, I'll make another episode, kind of part two, to say more about this fascinating story of my family. But just to suffice to say now that this gift of identity, of self-identity, of knowing what my name means, it's like a miracle. So I hope this finds you very well wherever you are in the world and sending warmest wishes now and always now and 